Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We are the podcast that translates Trump, and looks like he still needs translation to some people. Well, we'll help you. Also, on an obviously more serious matter, we talk about the threats to America, the existential threats to the America we know and love. Maybe not, you know, the atom bomb stuff, but policies, policies about economics and about energy and about immigration and other things which may threaten the well-being of this country. That's what we explore. Joining me today is our good friend Conrad Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. He'll share his thoughts on the midterm elections. Also, we'll speak with another regular, Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. He'll share why so-called climate change warriors protest against fossil fuels, but in doing so, they do not protect the climate at all. I want to ask about gas prices, oil. What does all that mean? What does it mean economically? What does it mean geopolitically? Joining us now, Conrad Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. Plenty to talk about. You've been writing a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I have. I have. I, I think the uh, hysteria with which the Democratic media started in about protecting Mueller and so on shows that they expected to do better than they did. But what do I know? Yeah, I, I, I am a Trump supporter, as you are, but I think I'm more worried than you are. I mean, yeah, I, there's a lot of media hysteria, a lot of left hysteria, a lot of left vengeance talk. But I think there's some troubling signs just in the election. I think I detected some hint of worry in what you wrote too. Um, let me start right there. I'm a little worried about the suburbs and those and those suburban women. I just uh, I'm looking at the numbers over past years and this year. And what do you think that is? Is that style? Is that you know he's too vulgar? He's too profane? Is, is that what that is? Just a bit abrupt and unsympathetic. You know, I mean, I, 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 look, I don't want to be glib here. It's not for me to mind read millions of people in a country that I don't in fact live in, but um, it's quite comprehensible to me that the president's style would offend to some degree at least a, a large swath of normally uh, people normally quite accessible to voting Republican, especially women who think that position he holds requires a sort of gentler formulation of his views, even if they don't find the views themselves offensive. But that's just a supposition. But I, certainly that undercurrent appeared to be in some of the results. I, it's also my impression, to be fair, that the Democrats went to a lot of trouble to produce an unusually good group of candidates where they didn't have a raving lefty. They, they appeared to have quite presentable candidates. Yeah, I was writing down um, helicopter pilots, uh, Marines, uh, lots of Navy commanders, all sorts of people who, uh, you know, would, would not be your normal uh, Democrat profile. But uh, let me tell you what troubles me. Um, you know, I come from the academy, and as they say, as someone said, I think Clifford Geertz, every anthropologist loves his own tribe. And so my, my problem with these suburban women is they all went to college, damn it. You mean that they, they think he, that the president is too much of a know-nothing? I mean, they went to college. They, they You know, they, they've heard this. I mean, this stuff has been going on in American universities since late 60s, 70s. It's taken root there. They had four years of this, probably not, not only in their humanity, but certainly their social science classes, maybe even their math and astronomy classes, for all I know. But, but I mean, you know, you get a steady diet of this, and then the media, um, it, it's obviously the respectable opinion in the suburbs. I'm sitting in one outside Washington, D.C., Montgomery County, where, you know, it's just it's, to hate Trump is de rigueur. That's it. I mean, it just goes uh, your, your poll must have been 90 percent Democratic. Yeah. Now, uh, I, you know, I, 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 let me let me throw every, everything I got on this, and then you can you can take it apart. By the way, I know we know you're not in America. But Tocqueville has nothing on you, Buster, if I may say that. You're, you're, I think my English is better than you. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it is, and your observations are as acute. But these are people who should be valuing 
personal security, personal well-being. And this president's been great for that. But are those two things which when you get, you kind of discount and kind of assume that you should have them so you don't give anybody credit for it? You know, Roosevelt felt that there was that tendency that voters had no gratitude at all, none. And he warned Mr. Churchill about this at Tehran. And you always had to present them a better vision for what's coming. And there may be an element of that. But look, the Democrats made an absolutely, and we have to give them some credit for this, I suppose, a fanatical, comprehensive effort to derail Trump in this election. And it, it was, at least from my vantage point, it didn't become clear how much they were pushing all the chips into it until quite late on. But a $5 billion spent, three-fifths from the Democrats, is something we've never seen before. And it was reflected, I think, in the turnout. Normally, given the media biases, it would have produced a much more hostile or negative result for the administration than it did. I mean, the fact is, as I understand it, you can correct me, but the the Republicans had over 40 congressmen retire, and I think the great majority were were never Trumpers who, who in in Jeff Flake's words, said it's the president's party, it's no place for me. And he only lost about, what, 10 less than that. So in in a sense, he actually strengthened his hand. It's just the trouble is the Democrats now get to organize the committees. But, and as for the, um, the cries of vengeance within the Democratic official party, people like Nadler and, and Schiff and so on. I, my theory has been, and I'm basing it in part on the president's comment that two can play that game, is that he will now be able to appoint a serious attorney general. And there are a great many prominent figures in the Clinton campaign and the Obama Justice Department against whom there is a very strong prima facie case that they should go to the grand jury. And and if, if they're going to keep badgering the president with this nonsense about Russia and other uh, other smear jobs that have no basis in anything but are just attempt, uh, attempts to inflame suspicion in the country that the chief of state and head of government is a sleazy person, morally unfit to be president, uh, then he is going to reply to that. And everyone knows that he's not a he's not a turn-the-other-cheek guy, and he's now in a position to do it. So I, I would have thought that there's an element of deterrence there and just a chance that uh, Pelosi, who's, who's the one who counts now, I guess, will say, well, look, let's lay off all the uh, harassment, impeachment stuff and see if we can get something done. But I may be completely naive. It may be yeah. uh, just, just <laughs> going, going to war even more fiercely than before. I don't know. Yeah, I want to get to that in a minute because it'll take 30 seconds. The answer is no, but uh, right. <laughs> at least from my perspective. But I just want to say something more about because you had it. You, you teased a phrase in there. You, know, you said something, wrote something uh, talking about the women in the suburbs. You said, you know, Nikki Haley must be enlisted or something like that. Well, it just seemed to me she was the person to hand for for the Republicans and the president who would be the perfect ambassadress to, to try and settle that down in advance and get mm-hmm. that situation in a manageable state. I agree with you. Uh, I, that is not based on any knowledge of what's actually going to happen. Yeah, but I, for all I know, she may want to retire and play golf for the rest of her life, but I doubt it. Would you go so far as to say this is someone he should consider for vice president? He, I, I, if he hadn't just invited yeah. Pence yeah. to rejoin him and, and <laughs> The and, press uh, conference. I asked him to put up his hand. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in fairness, I, Pence is a guy who deserves to be renominated. I think he's been a very good vice president. Uh, but but if, if things are different, I would say that yes, she would be. Yeah. Despite the fact George Will called him treacly, I guess. Treacly? Is that the word? 
think so. Is that George Will? Yeah, that's the column. Yeah, well, George yeah. gets carried away, you know. I mean, he thought George Bush Sr. at the guinea yard of a lap dog. I mean, sometimes George, just, I mean, he's a friend of mine, but he just can't avoid being unnecessarily nasty sometimes. I know he just wants to be a pill. He asked me when I became Secretary of Education, must you exist? Uh, you know, okay. Yes. I mean, all right, fine. <laughs> And he meant institutionally, but I'm a neighbor, so I thought it was, kind of, you know, not the nicest, most of Well, do you remember when it was suggested you might, might want to run for Senate and uh, in Maryland, I believe, and he, he said that he was afraid that on the order paper he would be behind Larry Pressler. Well, you know, Larry's not Daniel Webster. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So my last thought on this is you can't have a future. Uh, in this party where it's, uh, it's 80% rural America. That's just state where the numbers are. You can, you can give them the cities, but you gotta take, eh, I think 60% of the suburbs. I believe, Conrad, if you add it all up, I've got four different research papers here summarized that it broke 50-50 in the suburbs. But, you know, there was a gap, obviously, gender gap both ways. But for Republicans to prevail, the president to prevail, it's got to do more like 60-40. Now, let me ask you this, though. Is it the case that he he did make serious inroads with African Americans, for example? I don't know yet. No. Uh, there's all sorts of numbers flying around. The only one that we're sure of is that he went from like 5 to 8%. I've seen that confirmed. Yeah. That's not big enough. But, you know, but if you get into double figures, you're starting to make a big a big dent. Uh, it looked all uh, uh, on the other side, on the more positive side, from the Republican standpoint. Uh, two years ago, the the world, the country, and every part of the political community of the U.S. was flabbergasted and incredulous that Trump was apparently about to be president. And and for six or nine months, and I remember when he went off on his trip to the Middle East, visiting Saudi Arabia and then uh, uh, Israel and the Pope on the way back. Um, uh, Nathan, the inimitable, inimitable Mr. Silver, the uh, you know the unofficial Democratic pollster, for the whole first year of the Trump administration thought impeachment was at hand, and and even Dave Gergen, who's a sensible man, good man, although he's corroded by the CNN environment, they were talking impeachment as if it was something that might likely happen. Yeah. So I mean, things have settled down a long way since then, and and people have got a lot more comfortable with Trump, and Trump, in fairness has been uh, to all but the rabid partisans. He's certainly, whatever you think of stylistic matters, he's been substantively a pretty good president. I would say a very good president. Yeah, but, no, I agree. But, no, I agree. No, I mean, so I, 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 he's made a lot of progress, but uh, it's certainly no time for overconfidence. But I, I had the impression that the Democrats really thought, about two weeks before the election, they thought they had an excellent shot to take the Senate. And, and then they would just turn him on the spit, you know, that the Mueller would go on for at least another five years. And, uh, you know, every three months he'd take another 10 names out of the Moscow fund book and so on and, and, and charge them and, and, and then they could get the circus going in the house too and just completely immobilize this man and none of that is going to happen. Talking to Conrad Black okay. and no, no one has uh, chronicled better than you Conrad the various stages that uh, the Trump uh, syndrome uh, has gone through on the, on the other side. The headline this morning is Trump neglecting regular and normal duties of the president because he is so worried, afraid, uh, out of joint, uh, out of sorts uh, with what? Mueller? This is neo-Woodwardism. I mean, to listen to him, you'd think it was a madass. Yeah. I, again, I, I don't think so. And this is just an, uh, the latest installation of, you know, he's not fed, he's insane, he's unhinged, he'll 
bomb the world, whatever. I, I don't take it seriously. But let's talk about Democrats and Republicans. I was just going to say there's all this. I, I thought for a minute I, uh, on, on election night watching these moderates, these Navy commanders, Marines and NFL players coming in on the Democrat side. Well, maybe, you know, maybe this will be, you know, a, a moderating influence. Maybe they'll learn from this election what kind of party they should be to be popular. But now I'm convinced that they won't. There may be some gestures at bipartisan legislation, some, you know, smoke screens that go up, signals that go up. Okay, let's do something. But um, in the end, I think they're going to yield to those committee chairmen who are just going to, what are they calling it, the um, subpoena ca- canon or the investigation? Yeah, well, they're fine. Canon. If they want to do that, my prediction is that the new attorney general, after an appropriately uh, contemplative delay, uh, sends a whole swath of uh, senior Clinton campaign officials and, and agency heads and uh, or senior people in the Justice Department from the Obama administration, all of them to the grand jury. And that isn't just a subpoena nonsense and, uh, you know, uh, sort of McCarthyite uh, uh, spectacles of, of attempted severe interrogation for the television cameras. That, uh, that leads to actual criminal charges. And if the Democrats do that, they are out of their minds. I mean, a great many of them, from Mrs. Clinton down, have an awful lot hanging in legally here. And if they've forgotten that, then, then they're going to get what they deserve. Yeah, so that's how he'll he'll respond if he, they come at him with a few salons. Well, on well, all we've seen of him, he, he's, as I say, he's an eye for an eye guy. He's been an absolute haymaker, counterpunch. Yes. Not a, you know, you know I t- not proportionate response. You know? yep. And, and I, uh, I, let me ask you this, though. Isn't there just a chance whether he would ever... Uh, be credited to this or not, that Trump did the Democrats a favor by apparently providing the, the margin to assuming all the Florida results hold, keeping Gillum out of the, uh, the governor's chair, maybe even keeping Adams out in Georgia, and keeping this lunatic O'Rourke out of the Senate in Texas. Did he do the Democrats a favor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I, it doesn't that reduce the pull to the left in that party, which they seem to have been resistless against up until now. But look, but but again, but look at I mean, where's the center of gravity? Where's well, where's the center of energy? First of all, it's those committee chairs and the people running for president. You know, is Schumer going to have a quorum when he gets the Democratic caucus together? Apart from eight or nine people, go ahead. Ostensible candidates from the Democratic delegation and the senator, the most ludicrously implausible candidates for president. I mean, what are they smoking? Booker and Warren and Gillibrand? I mean, what on earth do they think qualifies them to be president? Fair enough. What about Biden? Yeah, hopeless. The only ones they've got... The only one they've really got that, has, that that makes any sense to me is is Bloomberg. It's very late, and, and he, he's you know he's, he's standing at the plate with two swinging strikes, having gambled on being Jeb Bush's Secretary of State and then Hillary's. But but at least he's a substantial figure. Who, if he were president, we wouldn't all be you know shaking in our boots, afraid that the whole country would be embarrassed by what happened. But I, I don't he's too. He's regional. He's, he won't travel. He, he's he's regional. He's New York. He's changed parties even more than Donald, and he's, uh, he'll, be, he'll be almost 80 when the election comes up. But yeah. still, he's a substantial figure. Sure is. I mean, these others are just, are, are, I mean, they're, they're adequate at a certain level of government, but to sit in the chair of George Washington, absolutely not. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's very capable. You you know him, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, I know him well. Yeah, okay. uh, his Smart. girlfriend's very good too. Yeah. The, the uh, uh, Biden, in my opinion, I, I, look, I hate to say this, but I, I often disagree with my fellow National Review writer Jonah Goldberg. But I think he had it right that he has a hot air balloon for a brain. I mean, people seem to like Biden who know him, uh, but you know, politicians usually are likable. Otherwise, they're in the wrong business. But but. I, I mean, the man is a dolt. I've never heard him say anything sensible. Yeah, I'm guilty. I like him. And I've, I like I've him. never, I like I've never forgiven him for what he did to Bob Bork. I, I, I agree. It was a criminal I act. I agree. He and Teddy Kennedy. He charmed me. He was Charm. chairman of my committee uh, when I was became the director of drug policy. And no, uh, everyone who knows him seems to like. Him. Yeah, so but but I, I don't forgive. Perfect. I don't forgive the Bork thing either. And for a man from a little state, he's, he's you know gone one way. But they, uh, but uh, you no, know, I, I mean, look, I suppose he could hold the chair down, but he said he he would not be. I don't think he would have any chance against Trump. I mean, the country would just sense that as between the two of them, who, who, was, who was the stronger man, you know? Except for combine the suburban vote in the Northeast with his appeal and remember the critical importance of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But I would never forget that. Yeah, let's let's leave it there. Those were, and no, they were, they were could, close. You're, you're right. He could scoop up back some of the blue collar people. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I, you know, in in Quebec, this expression, uh, chef, positive chef. You know, it's a leader. He's not a leader. And Trump, in his way, is a leader. Joe Biden isn't. Do the expression again. Say to a chef or a positive chef, but in this case, a chef isn't the guy in the kitchen with a big white hat. It's the leader. It's but it translates a, as what? He's a leader or he isn't a leader. It doesn't mean leader in a fascistic sense. Right. It's man who can, who can lead a, a de, small d democratic movement. Yeah, no, in terms of that, I want you to read my essay, if you could, later today on Fox about nationalism. It's a defensive nationalism. I, I, I just love, you know, I have my degree in philosophy, so I just played with this for hours. If he says nationalist, they hear white nationalist. I said, when they hear tomato, do they hear rotten tomato? When you say ivy, do they hear poison ivy? I mean, what a difference a word makes. Well, and, and in French, as in English, uh, nationalism used without any definition is a perfectly respectable word. Well, the French uh, telling us not to be nationalistic? I mean, come on. No, in, in Macron, I wasn't, I listened to the speech, not exactly live, but right after he gave it, and it was actually, well, it was a bit wordy, it was a good speech, but, and I didn't see it as necessarily an attack on Trump, uh, but he should have said ultra-nationalism or something is the, is the is the betrayal of patriotism, but he didn't. But, but having said the day before that the Europeans who are incapable of getting past in the major countries, one percent of their budgets for defense should put together a European army to defend themselves against the Americans, the Russians, and the Chinese when the Chinese march all across Eurasia to attack Europe. Uh, at the same time, perhaps, that the Americans make the pincers movement do a, a, a reenactment of D-Day, but across the entire Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I mean, you, uh, you have to wonder if the president of France has flipped his cork. I mean, this is just not rational. Yeah. All right. I want to I do a highbrow question, but a low lowbrow first, because you, you got me there when I said counterpuncher and you said haymaker. Will the day come in the next two or six years where he actually steps from behind the podium at a press conference and grabs Jim Acosta? And well, he, he was trying to do it over that microphone thing. He stepped aside. Yeah. 
Didn't you think? And I thought he was coming out to grab it, then he thought better of it. Hold on. Holy <laughs> smokes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I don't know. People, people, uh, it happens in other countries, you know, with the leader of the government sure. occasionally, sure. you know, belt the journalist, but uh, we'll it, would be a, it would be a first. Uh, let me ask you about America. But he is, he is a, I don't know Acosta personally, and he, he may just be doing his job and carrying out orders from CNN, but he is a horribly obnoxious man to a member of the public watch. He sure he, you know, I mean, I go, I've been watching these people probably you know, since Eisenhower's day. I mean, can you imagine someone behaving like that at a press conference of President Eisenhower or President Kennedy? Oh, no, no. Let me ask you this, because, again, in one of your essays, you, you were prolific last couple of weeks. Lots of them. I can't remember which one. But there was a, a tone of uh, regret and understanding, but regret. These big questions before the American people, and yet America seems somehow unable to solve them, address them. Um, did I did I read that right? The kind of a little, yeah. little sad on well, your yeah. part. We have immigration. We have um, the health care. Some people are saying, you know, the reason we lost is we didn't address the health care thing. That, that may be right. But what is it about this great country, which has done so much and is so powerful? Did you was it you? I think you said not not since the civil rights of. Uh, yeah, that, that, I, mean, I may not have been the only one who said it, but I, I did. I did write that. Yes, I mean there was a problem. The country simply taken an unconscionable and of time to get to grips with, but President Johnson did get to grips with it and, and, and uh, you know, worked it out with Senator Dirksen and so on. Uh, I, 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 you know, it can be done again, and it does, it does happen when it has to happen in American history. But, but I guess I agree. I mean, historians of the future will be completely astonished that, that the, the country under both, you know, Congresses and presidents of both parties admitted these astounding numbers of unskilled people uh, completely undocumented into the country just turned a blind eye to it. Now, we know logically the reasons and uh, you know employ- the Democratic Party wants the votes and then the, the Republican employers like cheap labor but that's an excuse for uh, a, 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 such a complete dereliction of legislative and administrative duty by the federal government and, and, and reaching the point where the mayors of the great cities refuse to obey federal law and immigration matters and the uh, and, and there are attempts to prevent census takers position provided by the Constitution so you can allocate members of the electoral College and the House of Representatives to ask if people are citizens. I mean, this this can't happen. I mean, it can't go on, and 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 it's it's it's, it's so difficult to address it. And the, as we said, uh, health care is is just bounced around, and uh, frankly, so is abortion. It shouldn't have been left in the hands of the uh, of the courts. I mean, what have we got legislators for? But they but at least there is a practice anyway, and on that subject, whether you know, whatever anyone thinks of it, and and uh, but it, ha- it just has to be. Yeah, so am I. It has to go back to the states. It just has to go back to the states. Yeah, I mean, the issue the only is when, political do the, solution. when do the unborn attain the rights of, of a person is the question. Sure. It isn't a woman's right to privacy over her body. I mean, she's got a life inside her. In Britain, we just had a series of votes under the upper house of parliament there, and they, it was it was uh, abortions are uh, a series going from abortions are not legal at any time to abortions are legal at any time. And then in the saw-off where you've got a majority, non-party vote, complete absence of any whips or anything. Everyone just spoke their minds and no question of partisanship. Uh, it was at five months and then after that you need some reason to have an abortion. But uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect solution. It's a compromise, but at least it was addressed by the people entrusted. Yeah, got to legislate. Yep, got to address them. I, 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 interviewer, I recall, with one of my favorite novelists, Walker Percy. I don't know if you know his work. A little bit. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a student of his and I... Um, 
I, I nominated him to be the Jefferson lecturer when I was chairman of the National Network for the Humanities. We had a five-hour lunch at the White House, and he was telling New Orleans stories. But but in the interview, he said, what is your worry about the United States? He says, well, I'd like to come back in 50 years and see how this all turned out, sit on a bench in Central Park, see how it all turned out. And he said, you know, we're not going to be invaded by some, you know, by some superpower. I wasn't talking about a car- caravan, certainly, but wasn't thinking of that. He said, but, but I just worry that this greatest of all nations will somehow find itself becoming cynical and different because it has a kind of helplessness brought about by itself toward addressing some of these very large problems that we have. Why can't it? We pay tribute to the founders for their genius and the design, but are we somehow helpless to address these immigration, healthcare, uh, other big issues? And is that the founders' fault or is that just the way the parties have gone or what? Yeah, you're asking me. Yeah. Well, I think it's in the, I mean, Alexis. Like, Alexis. We're, yes. we're into horribly complicated issues. I know. Huge. I know. Complex countries. I don't want to sound flippant, but I think that we're we're into we're into this process of the atomization of society and the the deconstruction of society into units, subgroups, all of which are are in effect encouraged to conceive of themselves as victims. And uh, and we're finally getting the counterforce by this administration, this president, of waving the flag around and saying, we can't get into all that. We're yep. all Americans. Yep. We all have equal yep. rights. And, and I think as long as you've had the pressures you have had to, to identify the, the gays and the transgenders and different ethnic groups and so on and pander to them, uh, rather than saying, look, uh, the fact that we're all Americans entitles us all to equal rights, and that includes uh, everybody, and, we, uh, and approach it from that standpoint, you're, you're going to get increasing difficulty dealing with any any of these terribly complicated questions. But in the end, I think it's just got so uh, hostile in the internecine contests, and, and I blame a lot of this on, on, on the addiction of the system to criminalize policy differences. And I was one of those at a very young age who warned that would be the result of Watergate. Yeah. And, and uh, where, you know, even today, there's no evidence to convict Nixon of a crime. I mean, some of the people around him committed crimes, but yeah. there's no evidence. Yeah. He did. And he was a very good president, and and uh, but once they got into that, uh, it, it got very difficult to recreate that sort of you know the famous meeting between LBJ and Dirksen when LBJ said we've got to do this and what do I what can I do to bring you on board and he's. He said, well, I think uh, John Smith would be an excellent uh, member of the Circuit Court of Appeals from Chicago. And so I dictated yeah. the letter. You know, I mean, at a certain point, you've got to make the system work. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, in the end, Bill, it's not for me to tell you this. Half the people are in each party. And, and other than for a year or two every few decades, you need some level of cooperation to get anything done. Yeah. I, and, and you know, back to the founders, as if they didn't see it, you know, Madison starts for was 10. A faction is a group of citizens united by a common impulse of passion. Well, we've got that in spades, but we were supposed to have the answer to it, too. We'll see. We'll see. I do think... I do think that, unlike what his critics say, that most of the president's efforts, even if bellicose, pugilistic, whatever, uh, you know, leading too far, are about bringing about a unity when he talks about the country and the flag and standing for the flag and we're all Americans. I, yeah, I, I, I don't think anyone really questions that he's, he's a patriotic man. Oh, oh. 
Oh, really? really? I, 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 is there, I mean, are, are, are the, the sort of Nadler Maxine people saying he isn't even a patriot? Um, I realize what else they're saying. But well, he's a white nationalist. That. He's a racist. You don't have to say he's not a patriot. I, I, maybe you're right. If, if you've convicted him of you know, racism, you, you know, what's the one thing any respecting middle class American wants to be called less than anything else? Bigot yeah. and racist. And, 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 and he has, uh, I mean, frankly, if you look at it historically, a fair number of the presidents have not, and they haven't, they haven't had a passing grade on that issue, but Donald Trump does. He's so not too. a racist any more than we are. We shall see. Keep it coming. Yeah. My stuff is great, yeah. Conrad Black. We, we love talking to you. Thank you very much. The pleasure's mine. Thank you. Bill. All right. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. And Joel Farkas joins us now. He's director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Goodness gracious, I opened up a geyser here when I just tapped a little bit on your on your well. My my goodness. I don't know where to begin. I, let me begin here. I saw on TV this morning, they're selling gasoline at a gas station in Louisiana for less than two bucks a gallon. What's going on? What does it mean? What do you mean billionaires are lecturing us on climate change and not being good examples at the same time? Well, let's start with uh, let's start with gas prices. Um, oil prices uh, they were they peaked a little bit a, f- a few weeks ago. They were up more than seventy dollars a barrel. Now they're down to about fifty seven, fifty five, fifty seven, fifty eight dollars a barrel. People were were uh, were talking about my gosh, oil prices are going through the roof, and now they're talking about oil prices are going down. What has happened is really almost identical to what President Trump's policies have been trying to do. And let's let, let's just say that um, we, he wants America, the United States, to be reliant on, on oil and gas production, to be a larger producer. He wants the United States to have lower prices for energy, but not just gasoline prices, but utility costs, which help middle class and lower middle class people. He wants more jobs. And lo and behold, what we have is America producing a lot of oil and gas, lower energy costs, more jobs, and by the way, lower CO2 emissions, continually declining CO2 emissions. Yeah, we did that with you last time. That was amazing and is amazing. All right, so that mission accomplished or or being accomplished, I guess. Yes, and, and I think a lot of the a lot of the reports we see worldwide uh, is talking about you know difficulty of other countries. But let's uh, real briefly why are oil prices? What are the many reasons? There are many reasons why oil prices are declining. One of which is the United States has an extremely strong currency. The dollar is very strong. Other countries have weaker currencies. So what happens is when they're buying oil, which is denominated in dollars, their, their costs are going up. So they, they, they're using less. Uh, another another factor is China. They're produ- you know we we have uh, President Trump has laid down the law, set the bar for trade, and we are seeing China's export production reducing, which by the way also means they will use less oil and gas. So 
So the demand has gone slightly down. Those are all kinds of things that are interrelated to the oil and gas markets in the world. And again, uh, the, the president has been very focused on that. One last smaller thing, Iran, he's the president has given waivers, allow Iran to sell some of their oil, which means more oil's on the market. All these things are achieving the president's goal, which was he didn't want to see oil go to 100 to $150 a barrel. He wanted the consumers, United States consumers, to get a fair fair price and, and mission accomplished, as you just said. What does it What does it do to the, uh, the theme that you and I have talked about several times? People are very interested in who listen to the show. What does this do to the gas station called Russia? <laughs> the gas station called Russia, when they make less money selling gas or selling oil, it hurts them. That is the, the United States' most easiest way of combating what, what is a, it's an adversary. Russia is our adversary. And while everyone believes our president is colluding with Russia, we haven't seen any evidence of that yet, uh, we do have evidence that he has just cost the Russian government yeah. enormous amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about a relationship and it has to do with the pocketbook, he's no friend, right? Uh, what? Tell me this, amateur's question. I keep hearing the uh, the Saudis and others talking about cutting production. Given the way the world works now, if the Saudis cut production, would will that does that dramatically? Would that dramatically affect the price of oil, gas? It would affect the near-term price. Yes, all of these things affect the price of oil. So them cutting, Russia cutting, Iran, as I mentioned earlier selling more, all those things affect the price. But what we're also talking um, in terms of oil is there's different grades of oil. So there's this very light grade, which is used more for transportation, then there's heavier grades, which Canada and Venezuela and other countries produce. And that grade is more for diesel and, and other kinds of industrial products, bitumen for, for asphalt, for infrastructure. So while the barrel of oil that's used mostly for transportation is what we hear about a lot, there's all these other grades, which we somewhat benefit from, uh, yeah. uh, you know, from the more increased demand. One other thing, China is not unaware of this. They have just recently come into Canada and Alberta and purchased a massive amount of, of oil and, and the heavier grades in their tar sands and their other kinds of areas that, that the uh, environmentalists hate. China. China, right, China right, came right. In. And why did China go to Canada? Why didn't they go to Venezuela? Why didn't they go anywhere else where they went to? They went to Canada because the price of what's called West Canadian Select Oil, price of that is about $20 a barrel, not huh. 70 huh. 20 And that's a whole different discussion. But China just swooped in, and uh, there they go. Let me ask you this. Is it, uh, maybe it's more a question about the judiciary. I know it's a question about the judiciary. Is it a question about energy and oil, too, this judge stopping the Keystone Pipeline? Oh, it's absolutely a question. The reason why the Canadian West Western Canadian Select price is so low is the, the judiciary has shut down the, all their pipelines, Trans Mountain pipelines. Uh, He's uh, all um, the host of them. They shut them down, and uh, which means the only way you can transport the fuel is predominantly by rail. When you shut down the transportation of the product, doesn't matter what you produce, um, you can't get it to market. That's kind of the uh, that's what that's what I, I um, you mentioned when you asked me about I billionaires. See. I um, see. That's, that's where that comes into play. All right, let's get into billionaires and climate change warriors and their connection to this discussion. Well, two of the most famous American billionaires are 
Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Bill Gates in particular is touted as you know, promoting uh, technological advances to deal with CO2 emissions, and he's a very admired, well-regarded, well-respected fellow, and, and I don't, and, and, and I believe that he is to be admired. But Bill Gates is also the largest, the single largest owner of the Canadian National Railway, and what do they do? They transport frac sands to oil and gas production sites, and they transport oil from there on trains. So if pipelines are built, trains aren't going to be needed as much. If the Keystone Pipeline you mentioned is built, Burlington Northern, which Warren Buffett owns, will not be needed as much. So who has the most direct and economic incentive to not have a pipeline transporting oil away or frac sand to uh, a production site? Our two most famous admired billionaires in the United States. Wow. China. How much are they buying in Canada? China is buying uh, the, uh, the oil from the Alberta province, which has it's heavier oil than it has bitumen, and they, they want that for their infrastructure projects and growth. They're also major purchasers of LNG, liquefied natural gas, both from uh, predominantly from British Columbia. There's a brand new LNG plant that's just been approved um, in British Columbia. China is in Southeast Asian countries are some of the largest committed purchasers of that LNG. They buy a lot. They are basically one of the most predominant purchasers in the future of oil and gas from Canada. They make, I'm just curious, 20 bucks a, a barrel, Canada, they make a profit on that? Well, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head with the hammer. Where's the other money go? Where does it all go? The difference between the stated price of a barrel of oil and the net amount that I just described is called is what's called a differential. And differential is basically the transmission and transportation and processing piece. So refiners will buy the oil, very inexpensively refine it and resell it into the products that they make. Railroad companies that transport it, they will charge a significant amount. It goes to almost everybody other than the producer of the oil or even the government, like the, the Alberta government who gets a royalty on what they sell. That's it goes. To, that's a tax, basically. If the tax is based on 20, it is a direct impact to the, to the Alberta okay. government. So it, it goes to someone else, but it's predominantly the transportation of the product. Let's switch a few minutes we have remaining to some of the politics of all this. And I don't care whether we do Washington politics, national politics, or California politics, your choice. But I did see a kind of hilarious item that I can't think of. I said Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the new congresswoman from Queens, having been elected, participated in a sit-in outside of Nancy Pelosi's office. It's kind of, wait a minute, wait a minute, you just got elected, you know? But she, it was a sit-in stage to emphasize the primacy, prima center pars, the number one issue, which is global warming, and that the Democrats yeah. must address this. Yeah, um... Take it to you know, Washington, you, take it to California. I don't care. Take it to both. I want to take it to you. You you just wrote a, a, a wonderful piece on nationalism and what that means. And when someone like Ocasio-Cortez or others like her put climate as the prominent, predominant 
focus away from the interests of, of a country, of a nation state, of population. That's their focus. That's what she wants to say is most important. Well, what happens when that when that happens? By the way, she's not the only one who did that. Uh, there are some people in the United Kingdom who glued themselves to government buildings in, in the United Kingdom. They literally glued? took super glue and glued themselves glued. to them. Glued them. Glued and had well, signs saying, somehow. please do. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should sell more glue. But they had little signs say, please do not remove. I'm glued to the, to the thing. Do not tear. Um, do not pull. <laughs> Briefly, the language people like Ocasio-Cortez and others in the, in, the, in the environmental movement, the language they use is so insidious. Uh, they, they, they describe people who don't agree with them as sinister, as malevolent, that oil and gas is p- literally poison. Um, and, and, and that it, it, it just goes, you know, you're just a, a miserable, disgusting human being if you have a different opinion than them. But the politics of it, what happens when someone takes that position. President Trump said, I'm a nationalist. Well, President Xi of China just said something almost almost identical. He said, China is now going to kind of revert back to what Chairman Mao said called self-reliance, and that China was going to be self-reliance and produce their own goods and go on and on. Well, I don't, I don't know. That sounds pretty similar, that a nation wants to protect itself. Yeah. What happens when a nation doesn't protect itself? Yeah. We, we have a couple of simple examples. I mentioned that you know Canada is cutting off their, their entire industry. The uh, prime minister of New Zealand, about six months ago, um, when she was elected, said, we are going to, New Zealand is going to cease, desist, no longer produce and drill any more natural gas wells. Just not going to do it anymore. Within six months, she had to reverse their course because the country realized, the entire, the legislature and the New Zealand country realized that they were, they had declining reserves. They were now going to almost immediately have to import oil to, to provide energy to their country. And this is what happens when you put something like a, a national global climate policy ahead of everything else. Yeah. You basically decimate your country, you decimate your economy, and you decimate your work constituents. And in this and case, you, you don't make much of a difference in outcomes either in the world. Well, you don't. You know, uh, 30 years ago, in 1987, the, the world consumption of fossil fuels, about eight, 81% of the energy was from produced was from fossil fuels. Today, in 2018, you know what that number is? No. It's about 81%. Okay. hasn't changed. This notion that you are somehow malevolent and sinister because you don't want to protect your nation, yeah. I directly Direct your listeners to read what you said because that's a you, you, you uh, yeah. I did a little op-ed on on, on nationalism. I just pointed out that the, you know, if it's bad for a president to love his country, you really got to dislike Lincoln. It was the whole game yeah. for him? It was the whole game for him? Anyway, um, let's go to California. I, I hate to narrow your focus, but this is the favorite topic listeners have when they listen to you. So when I go to California, you know, I'm struck by a lot of things. Beautiful place. Ocean, mountains, gorgeous place, creativity, Silicon Valley, Hollywood. But the biggest impression I get uh, is uh, cars, highways. So they're obviously in favor of fracking and oil and energy and letting it rip because they need to do that in order to get around in California. You got to have a car in California, right? Uh, Can't exist without one. Yeah. Well, California's trying to build a uh, mass transportation. 
fast speed train from San Francisco to, to Los Angeles, but that's going to now cost somewhere in the tens of billions of dollars. It'll yeah. never happen. That's not going to get it. It's going to get get people from a one beautiful city in Northern California to another beautiful city in Southern California. It does nothing for everybody else that lives in the yeah. uh, in the rest of the state. Yeah. And California, um, you know, politically. It's not going to change its trajectory. We, the, the, the leaders of California today, the Attorney General Xavier Becerra, Senator Kamala Harris, new governor Gavin Newsom, Kevin DeLeon, another person that no one's probably heard of unless you follow California. All of them have one thing in common. Sue the federal government over its climate policies and sue the federal government over its immigration policies. There is, if, if, if anyone's, and, and by the way, the recent election, California has always been dominated. The state government's been dominated by Democrats in, in, the, in the legislature, assembly, and the Senate. Um, now, the Democrats have a supermajority in both houses both elements of government, which means they can do darn darn near anything they want to do, including a governor and they have the super oh, okay. So we'll have a test um, case. We'll have a test case. What Democrats, we are going to have a test case. Un- unhampered liberal progressive Democratism, what it does. Exactly. That's what you're going to get to see it. And you're going to get to see it in the next few years. Um, and, and their policy is what I just said. I can tell you one thing. The word job doesn't come up much. <laughs> and affordable, reasonably priced housing for yeah, families yeah. who want to yeah. live with their kids near them doesn't come up. Got it. Um, that's where California's head. California actually would like the rest of the United States to become effectively East California. They, they just, there's very, very proud of their, uh, proud of their. Uh, I thought they wanted out. You mean they want the rest of us in as part of them? Well, if they can't get out, that's what they want. Okay, they <laughs> All right. Joel, we'll leave it there. We thank you very, very much. Great talking with you, Bill. As always, most informative. Thank you, Joel. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. And please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 